This is episode 52 of the Untangled Faith podcast. Today I'm joined by Nagme Panahi. It became really big news. I think close to a billion people were reached all over the world. Every single state had a prayer vigil on the day of Saeed's arrest. But when you introduced your name to us just a few minutes ago, you said that you're going by your maiden name now, and you mentioned Saeed as somebody that you are no longer married to. Most people don't know is that before Saeed went to prison, I was in a very abusive marriage. Um, those who have not walked through abuse would not understand it. They, like people like Franklin Graham and others, called me a liar when it came out. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith, while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. The Untangled Faith Podcast is brought to you by my listeners who support me on Patreon. This episode is also sponsored by Faithful Counseling. Earlier this year, after putting it off for far too long, I started seeing a counselor, and it's made a huge difference for me. Faithful Counseling is a Christian counseling service with thousands of licensed therapists across all 50 states with access by video or phone sessions or chat or text. There are therapists with expertise in trauma, depression, family conflicts, and more. You can ask for a new counselor at any time, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Untangled Faith podcast listeners get 10% off their first month from our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. Fill out a questionnaire and you'll be matched with a counselor. That's faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. In 2012, Saeed Abedini was placed under house arrest in Iran. During the time of Saeed's confinement in Iran, his wife Nagme advocated for his freedom. The movement to save Saeed became a highly publicized issue, and if you paid any attention to the news during that time, you likely heard the name Saeed mentioned. Most of the public saw him as a hero martyr and were thrilled to hear of his release in 2016. What the public didn't know was there was an entire component to this story, a dangerous side of Saeed, that caused his wife Nagme to have serious reservations about their family's reunion. Nagme joins me today to share some of her story. You know, some people will see your name and they will say, I feel like I've seen her name before, but they're not exactly sure how they know your name or, or they do, or they do know your story. So could you give us just a brief overview? How do we know you? Why, do, why is your name familiar to yeah. us? <laughs> I get this so much, even at stores, people are like, I know you. How do I know you? And Sometimes I just want to walk away. I don't want to go into the detail of how they know me or yeah. they'll recognize I was at a, uh, I was playing soccer with my sister-in-law and this woman came up and said, what's your name? And I told her and she's like, oh, I know that name. How do I know that name? And uh, sometimes I just, I'm like, I don't know. And sometimes I'll be like, maybe you've seen me on the news and they'll be like, yes, that's where it is. So um, it's uh, people still recognize how I look and my name. My last name's different than what it used to be on the news. It used to be Nagme Abedini. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's my maiden name, Nagme Panahi. Um, I kind of came into the public eye in 2012 when um, my then husband, Said Abedini, was 
was arrested and put in the Iranian prison. And it became really big news. I didn't think at that time it would be. When he got arrested, I didn't actually go to media. It was about probably six months until the first media pickup that I decided to go to media. And that was Fox News. And it was a written article. They didn't even know how big it was going to be. So once it got really they released it as a written article on their website and it kind of blew up. I was on Hannity. And from then on, it was just like Fox News, CNN, like, and then all a lot of other secular media picked it up. It was around the time Obama was president. There was the talk of a nuclear deal with Iran. And of course, it became a big deal of how are we making a big deal with Iran when they have Americans in prison in Iran? At that time, no one knew that Iran had other prisoners. Uh, when my stuff came to light, then we realized there was a Marine in prison. There was a Washington Post reporter in prison. There was others that were in prison. So it became really big news. I think close to a billion people were reached all over the world. Most Christians know about this story. It was all over churches. By 2015, there was over a thousand prayer vigils. Every single state had a prayer vigil on the day of Saeed's arrest, September 26th, at their capital. We had um, pretty much uh, every prayer vigil had a, a like a government official, a senator, a congressman speak. Um, it really became very political and also became a, a something that unified the church. It didn't mm-hmm. matter what kind of church, where you stood politically, everyone wanted Saeed out of prison. And it, it really uh, grew and uh, a lot of churches got involved. And I was speaking at uh, the Congress, I was speaking at the UN, but I was also speaking at a lot of churches and events and so on. Yeah, I remember seeing it on the news. I remember, I feel like there was a hashtag, Save Saeed. Uh, there was a huge yeah. movement. And so, but when you introduced your name to us just a few minutes ago, you said that you're going by your maiden name now. And you mentioned Saeed as somebody that you are no longer married to. And so that may be a really big shock to some people that have not followed the story since Saeed was released, because I feel like some people may be tapped out at that point because like their prayers were answered. Um, They were, you know, hoping for the release of this, this pastor overseas and he was, and so they haven't followed your story since. And so to hear that you aren't together, can you share a little bit about what happened uh, that we weren't seeing some things were happening behind the scenes and, and how, how you got to be in Boise, Idaho as a single mother. Yeah. Um, I think the news did such a good job of covering his release and then it kind of, because it was like yucky talk of abuse and separation and divorce it kind of shut down. So a lot of people, when they see me and they recognize me, they're like, how is he doing? They know he was released, but they don't know anything after that. So um, uh, on social media, I changed back to my maiden name. I've always had my maiden name. In the Middle East culture, the woman keeps her maiden name. So when Saeed was put in prison, uh, people were wondering, why is Anagme Panahi advocating for Saeed Abedini? Are they married? Are you by separate? Like, so if, in terms of social media and media in general, I changed my media name to Nagme Abedini, but I've always been Nagme Panahi. Um, towards the end of Saeed's imprisonment, he would actually tell me he, he got a smartphone towards the last year of his imprisonment. He was in prison almost uh, th- three and a half years um, and six months in house arrest, so about four years. Uh, of which six months of it was house arrest. But when he was actually put in prison, um, 
towards the end of it, he got a smartphone and he was communicating with me. And part of the thing he said, he said, when I come out, I'm going to divorce you and you're no longer going to be Nagmi Abedini and no one's going to even like you. The reason you're famous, the reason people even clap for you, they're actually clapping for me. And actually, that was one of his requirements when he came out. He wanted my name moved back to my maiden name, which I was actually, it was freeing for me to do that. Um, but uh, what most people don't know is that before Saeed went to prison, I was in a very abusive marriage. At that time, I would have not put the word abuse on it. Um, those who have not walked through abuse would not understand it. They, like people like Franklin Graham and others called me a liar when it came out. And I'm actually thankful for the way I was treated because it's an example of how abused the abused community is treated. They're blamed yeah. uh, and they're called liars because they hide the reality. They're learned, they're taught to cover up and, uh, you know, especially in a marriage. And so I didn't even know I was abused. Uh, maybe the part of the factor was that I had grown up also in the Middle Eastern culture where you do whatever it takes to um, women are treated in a way in, in a lesser way in, in, because of the laws in, in Iran and Middle Eastern countries. Women don't have as many rights. And in a way, maybe I just accepted that. But I wouldn't have put abused on uh, the word abused on my marriage because in my mind, I thought someone uh, who's poor, someone who's not educated, someone whose husband is a drunk who comes home and is always beating their wife, maybe that's abuse. I grew up in a upper middle class family. My dad was a businessman. I was well-educated. I was pre-med. Um, I had been beaten a few times, but in my mind, I had explained it that I was being sassy. Maybe I was being too outspoken. Um, so I wouldn't have put the word abuse on it. And towards the end of Saeed's imprisonment, he had gotten a phone uh, from prison and which is what shocked me to reality um, before he had a phone everyone would say you are so Saeed is so lucky to have a wife that is working so hard to get him out of prison he had almost a 10-year sentence and he got out in three and a half mm. and everyone was saying you're working so hard I was traveling three four times a month and um, and so in my mind, I was thinking Saeed is changing in prison. He's going to appreciate. He's not going to call me names anymore. And when he got a phone, he started calling me a whore and Jezebel. And he was really upset that I was famous in his eyes. And I said, we're on the same team. It's not about fame. It's about getting you out. And he was upset no matter what I did. If I, if I said, you know, if, if it bothers you that I don't travel because you hate that people are paying attention to me, then I won't travel. I'll stay in Boise. And he would say, no, you need to keep my story alive. So no matter what I did, mm -hmm. he was mad at me. And that's when I realized that was my line of realizing, you know what? I can do everything for this man and I can, I'm can. i still being treated horribly, being called a whore and Jezebel and you're worthless. You're nobody. Don't think you're ever like he treated me like I was dumb. And at that time, I had been separated from him for a few years and I had, God had built up my confidence where I was like, you know what? I'm not dumb. Like he said, I am, I'm able to speak in front of Congress. I'm able to speak in front of media. I'm not stupid. I, I mean, God has used me to uh, bring millions of people together to get him out and prayer vigils and government officials. So his lies of you're stupid, you're dumb, you're or like all of that was no longer affecting me as much. And that's, that was my line where he was just calling me names and he was saying, I'm going to come out. I'm going to divorce you. 
And to be honest, even though there was physical and other forms of abuse before his imprisonment, his imprisonment had made it way worse. I was mm -hmm. literally afraid for my life because I realized this man has PTSD. He has paranoia. He thinks I'm stealing his fame. He, and so I, I knew I didn't know what to do with it. I, everyone at that time knew him as this famous martyr for Jesus. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I, for the first time in my life, even uh, I wouldn't even share about marital problems with my parents because then you're like, oh, now they see him in a bad light. Mm -hmm. You know, they saw stuff, but most of it they didn't know because I was didn't even wasn't sharing it with someone. But for the first time in November of end of October of 2015, on one of my trips to North Carolina, speaking at a really big church, I confided in a pastor there that, um, you know, about. I don't understand what's happening. This is how my life has been with this man. I worked to get him out and this is how he's treating me now. And I showed him, I think some of the messages Said was sending me through Skype and it was just like, he was showing throw up and like, I, I hate you. Mm -hmm. You're disgusting. And, and the pastor diagnosed me. He said, I'm a, I'm not just the pastor. I have a doctorate in psychology and you're an abused wife. And that's is that the first time, is that the first time you actually took that in? Wow. First time I took it in, it was like someone saying, you have cancer. The reason you have back pain, the reason you're not feeling well, why are you taking Tylenol? This is a serious issue. I don't know why, but in that moment, it hit me like, this is not just a normal marriage issue. This is a huge, this is an abuse issue. And it triggered a lot of things. I really had an emotional meltdown. I went to the hotel. He didn't know what to do with that information. Said was his hero. He would say, Said yeah. is my hero. So he kind of wrapped it up. He diagnosed me, but didn't really take time to take care of me. And he said, I have, I have a um, radio program tomorrow morning. I got to go. He, he was there with his wife. And I had a flight early in the morning that I had to go to. So I think my flight left at 6 or 7 a.m. And I had to leave my hotel at 4 or something. I didn't sleep that night. I was just Googling abuse. And everything that came up was exactly what had happened to my in my life. The wow dismissing family members, isolating me, the, um, the, the um, ignoring me, the, uh, the, you know, uh, ignoring me for days or even months, not talking to me, uh, the everything he did, breaking uh, personal objects that I like, beating my dog, uh, physical, you know, and I learned that abuse is actually little, very little of it is physical. Nagme's account of learning that her experience was abuse is not unique. Many abuse survivors don't realize what they are experiencing until someone outside the situation with understanding of these dynamics points it out. I learned about emotional, I was just reading up in the internet. And as soon as I got home, I ordered probably 20 books, Christian, non-Christian on abuse. And it was like someone had been watching my life with this man and had taken notes. It was everything in those books was exactly what was happening to me in terms of spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, financial abuse, everything. And so uh, that's that's when I knew I had to do something, um, not only for myself, but having been in communication with Saeed, uh, I knew that he was going to use his fame as a martyr to manipulate the church for, you know, to become like other rich Christians have, you know, he wanted uh, private jets and, and all of that. And I had been, 
I had left Islam as a nine-year-old and had paid a cost. And I had left America in my 20s after September 11th to go share the gospel in the Middle East. So I always associated Christianity with a cost, with a cross. I didn't associate with, oh, I'm a Christian. Now I get famous. Now I get money. And he was so much into how can I maximize my martyrdom for my benefit and have, have a kingdom on earth. And so I knew I had to do something about this, um, not only for my personal life protection for me and the kids, but the church was being damaged by this deception that had happened in my personal life. You mentioned that you found some books that you're reading. Was there any in particular that you would recommend to people that maybe don't, that you would say, if you don't know much about domestic violence or abuse, this would be a good resource. What was, what, what books were helpful for you? There were so many, but I, uh, um, for me, because I really wanted to know what was the right Christian thing to do. So I gravitated towards the Christian things. I didn't want to, so I gravitated towards what the books that really laid it out in structure. Uh, uh, so I would say Leslie Vernick, emotionally, uh, destructive relationship or marriage like that really woke me up. Um, I would say one of my favorite books now is Life-Saving Divorce. It really by Gretchen Bakerville. And, but one of the books that I ended up, the person that wrote it ended up being my personal counselor was, I think it's called What to Do When You're Being Abused by Your Husband. Mm-hmm. And it was um, Debbie uh, Pride and uh, Robert, uh, Pastor Robert Needham, who's now my, who became my actually counselor and walked me through all this. So I gravitated towards the books like Leslie's and Pastor Needham's book because they were more like according to scripture. So I wanted to make sure I was doing the right thing according to the Bible. I did talk to Gretchen Baskerville. She had, she really opened up a lot of eyes, I think, in her research on what the Bible actually says about marriage and divorce and that it really can save somebody's life. It is a safety escape for many people, you know, not that people want that, not that somebody wants their marriage to die, but at that point, it's just calling the time of death. It's already died. The vows have already been broken. Right. And I think some people don't realize that. And I heard, I've heard Leslie Vernick say that as well. When she was at the caring well conference, I listened to her, uh, the video of her speaking. And she basically said, y'all, these marriages are dead already. They are. The the person has already broken the marriage vows. You're just putting on paper what has happened in uh, in reality. I love Gretchen's book because I didn't have it at that time. I found it later yeah. because I, and I recommend it to so many people because I come across genuine love, God loving Christian women who are afraid to walk away Yeah, and they're afraid to dishonor God. They're afraid to upset God. And this book goes through so much scripture and it's so grounded in the Bible. And it just, it's beautiful for, uh, for me, it has broken a lot of chains of women that are know something's terribly wrong with their marriage. They know they're wasting away, but they want to honor God. And I say, read this book, right? She honors God. She loves God. And you're not dishonoring God by walking away from something that is, is, has already destroyed the marriage. I would imagine by sharing your story, Nagme, people reach out to you with their own stories how common is it that somebody doesn't realize that they are in an abusive relationship until somebody else kind of helps them see that? Very common. Most of the people that uh, followed me, followed me because of Christian persecution. 
And later they said, as I watched your journey, I realized I was in an abusive marriage. Mm -hmm. They didn't even know. Um, and they didn't even know there was such thing as emotional abuse or spiritual abuse or financial abuse or the isolation and the, and, and, and the, you know, the silent treatment, all of that. So the more we talk about the symptoms, how does it look like? And, and I was just talking to a lady a few days ago. I still talk to people who are kind of starting to realize it. Um, she was saying my body's falling apart. Like that's mm -hmm. how I start realizing something's off in my marriage. I'm having autoimmune disease. Um, there's all this stuff that's happening. So your, our body starts telling us something is wrong. And, and so many people don't know. I, so I think it's way more than we can ever imagine, especially I think within a Christian household, because we're yeah. told to submit. And so the power play of, of the man becomes uh, very um, abusive. It's out there. And, and statistics really, I think, really focus more on physical abuse and more on people who are reporting it. They're yeah. not even talking about the, I think, the more confusing psychological and emotional and spiritual abuse. And for me, the most wicked of all of it is the spiritual abuse because you are causing a stumbling block when you're using the Bible to have someone submit to you and to abuse someone, to control someone. You're using the precious name of Jesus mm. to do something that is so against Christianity. And having been raised in Islam for the first nine years and having been raised in Iran for the first nine years of my life, um, it bothers me that his name, because I see the difference between Islam and Christianity. If it's any other thing that's being used to oppress, that's okay. That's fine. That's how the world operates. Someone in power oppresses the one that's, um, you know, uh, weaker. But when it's, you're using the name of Jesus, who's against this kind of oppression, who actually teaches that if you're in a place of power, you are to serve and to love. That's when I just, it gets to me. That's wickedness to use yeah. God's name to oppress when that is so much against the nature of God, against who he is. And it messed up my relationship. Someone who was saved out of Islam, someone who loved Christ, paid the price of following him from age nine to 18. I was persecuted by my family because my dad was a very strong Muslim. Then going to Iran, being arrested, God pointed to my head to deny Christ. For mm -hmm. someone to have loved Christ so much, I was willing to lay down my life ended up in an abusive marriage where the guy, where he was a pastor to a point where I couldn't even read my Bible. I couldn't oh, even wow. pray to that point of distance between me and God. That for me is wickedness. And that for me was the most hardest thing to overcome. And God in his amazing grace, he rescues us in his amazing grace. The most traumatic event in my life that I thought this is the worst thing that can has ever happened to me. My husband's, my husband being put in prison in the worst prison in the world, in the worst country in the world, the most radical Muslim country. Iran is one of the top. I thought this is the worst thing, but it was yeah. God's rescue of me. God used his imprisonment to say, you know, daughter, you've had enough. I'm going to separate you and I'm going to set you free. That was my freedom, and I didn't see it at that time. And mm -hmm. I believe for all of us, and and at that time, my relationship with God was. I rarely read the Bible. I rarely prayed. It was completely cold. My relationship with God was very cold. And then he rescued me. He, I was in a coma in, in my Christianity. I was yeah. really, 
And so that's the moment he put Saeed away and revived me back to my who he is and what he cares about. And it was against so much of what I've been taught. I was taught about sanctity of marriage and the importance of marriage. And God, through his word, showed me, I care more about you than a structure or or yeah. an institution. You matter, your well-being, your mental, not just physical, your mental well-being, your spiritual well-being. You matter to me. You're the one sheep that I came to die for. I didn't come to die for marriage. And if the marriage falls apart, it falls apart. Let it fall apart. You haven't sinned. I came for you. And the irony of all of this is my husband cheated on me. He was addicted to porn, but he had later he admitted he cheated on me with multiple women. And he, there was physical abuse, but I was so afraid of divorce. I ended up not being the one who filed for divorce. Wow. I just separated. He actually came out of prison and filed for divorce. And for me at that time, it felt like I'm worthless. I'm not even worth fighting for. I fought to get him out of prison. He didn't even fight for our marriage to say you're worth fighting for. Our marriage is worth. So at that time, when he filed for divorce, I fell apart. I felt like the worst thing had happened. But the best thing happened. My counselor said, Nagme, God has set you free. I couldn't file for a divorce. So God had Saeed file for a divorce. Um, and that was my rescue. Again, every time I've looked at something thinking this is horrible, it was actually God's grace in my life and his yeah. rescue of me. I would imagine that there are people that just don't understand that. They'll, they'll run into you or they'll hear your story and they'll be like, Nagme, I am so sorry about your divorce. And you would probably say, don't be. <laughs> it's not the divorce itself that was the hardest thing. Um, it, it was all the other things that were so very hard. There has been a lot more talk in the world and the media about domestic violence with, you know, celebrity uh, trials and different things like that. And I don't know if you've followed any of that, but what are some like misconceptions you would say that are out there about what domestic violence looks like and how an abuser might use their uh, their power or influence in a way to discredit the one that is that has been abused do you have any thoughts on that yeah i'm so glad domestic abuse is coming more and more to light um yeah people are sorry that my marriage fell apart i was dying uh, he rest, God rescued me. I have peace. I have joy. My kids are growing up well. Um, <clears throat> people are so focused on the institution that they don't see the miracle God did in rescuing me. And, um, and so, um, I don't know. What was your comment about, um, yeah, the second comment was there's, you know, there's a lot more, you know, conversation happening in the media and the world about domestic violence with uh, the trial that happened with a, a, a pretty high profile celebrity. And I have been concerned. I don't know if you have had, had any concerns about some of the chatter that's come out of the talk about domestic violence. What are some things that concern you or, or some misconceptions about domestic violence? And I would say specifically, how might an abusive person try to control that narrative and how would they try to paint the person that is actually being abused. If you pay attention to only one part of our conversation, this portion right here is what I'd beg you to listen to. So many armchair quarterbacks followed the trial of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and glibly shared their assessment that Amber Heard was a liar. Here's why this sort of consumption of the trial and uninformed comments are harmful 
to those who have experienced domestic violence. Um, I have three really good friends that are divorced from an abuser. Two of them, after this, uh, the um, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's trial, filed against them for defamation. (laughs) Now they're both going through trial. And also, um, after four years of having disappeared, Saeed actually came back to fight again, calling me the problem, calling me the, you know, took me back to court and actually, you know, ended ended up being, ended up well for me and the kids. Unfortunately, it's uh, abusers use that to say, you know, see, I'm not the abuser, they're the abusers. And one of the things I talk about, uh, because when I help abuse women, I also, sometimes I end up talking to the pastor because they're confused. One of the things I talk about is there's so much confusion and that's what abusers like to do. It's when they bully someone, they don't necessarily even want the pastor to take their side. They want the pastor to be hands off. Mm. They want, you know, it's better to just be hands off so the abuser can continue. And a lot of times they become hands off. And um, I don't know, this might sound strange comparing the two, but <clears throat> when Russia attacked Ukraine, it was like everyone felt sorry for Ukraine. And then I started hearing chatter of, well, Ukraine has its own issues and maybe Russia's right. And because of that confusion, a lot of people that I had initially heard that they felt sorry for Ukraine, put their hands like they're like, we're not touching this. We're not helping Ukraine. And at that time, maybe it's my brain that works that way. I was thinking, wow, this is very much like how it plays out in an abusive home. Yeah. The abuser's attacking and everyone is like wanting to help the victim. And then things come up about the victim. The victim obviously is not a perfect saint either. Maybe they've attacked back. I, I hear a lot of pastors say, well, she was angry too. She threw something too. So then they're like, well, there's issues on both sides, so I'm not going to touch it. And the, the abuser, the oppressor wants that. They're like, yep, please don't touch it because I then I can continue to continue to yeah. oppress. That's the most dangerous thing is when the enemy and the oppressor and the abuser brings confusion to a point where people are like, I'm not taking sides. You're yeah. actually taking sides. You're actually allowing the oppression and destruction of life when you take your hands off that's actually making a decision and you are actually taking sides with the oppressor they want your hands off you know russia wants to be left around with ukraine for example you know um the abuser wants to be left around uh, left alone with their uh, the person they're abusing so the worst thing you can do is hands off so i would say when there's confusion be careful because that's what abusers want to do. They want to bring confusion. Mm-hmm. And one of the most confusing things is called, I love, I learned this from Leslie Vernick. It's called reactive abuse. A lot of pastors will say, well, she threw his cell phone and she was yelling too. And so there's anger on both issues, but you have to look at the bigger picture. You kind of have to pray for wisdom from God. You have to step back and say, who's trying to oppress the other person? Yeah, the other person might've shown anger and done this and that. But what's the bigger picture <clears throat> and something called reactive abuse? A lot of times abused women or the abused person, whoever they are, um, they don't make sense. They're still under fog. They ramble on. They talk about stuff. And in a way, by talking so much and talking all over the place, they start discrediting themselves. And also they're not perfect saints. So they have messed up. They've done things that looks controlling or abusive. Uh, but a lot of times it's reactive abuse. Um, and, and also they're, maybe they're overreacting and oversensitive, but I compare to an animal that has never been abused, a dog, for example, that you bring home from birth to an animal that has been severely abused. You're going to be more careful. That animal has reaction to things yeah. 
that a normal animal doesn't. Or even um, I talk about burns, like when my, I've had a few burns from cooking recently, that area is very sensitive. You touch it, I might jump. It needs time to heal and all of that. So, um, so a lot of pastors use that to discredit the abuse. They're like, well, she's overreacting. She just start crying when we talked about this, or she was like yelling. And I'm like, that's their reaction. You have to see what has brought this person to a place where they're jumping at something that a normal person wouldn't jump at. Yeah. And so I would just, my caution would be, uh, abusers love to bring confusion so that everyone's like, hands off. They're both the same. I'm not getting involved. And that's actually there. That's when they win. That's when mm-hmm. the abuser wins. And that's my biggest warning and biggest, you know, just when my stuff came out, I had one pastor, my friend was going to a church in Texas and she sent me the recording. And he said, we have to take sides. We have to take Nogme's side because if we don't take side, we're actually taking the side of the abuser. And wow. for me, that was so soothing to listen to because at that time, either I was being accused of adultery or whatever. I was being accused of a liar and a deceitful person who tried to use Said or what is Said's cause. Or I was either have thrown stone, stones thrown at me or I had pastors that say, I don't want to touch this. It was rare. It was very rare for someone. It was a few people that actually came. Leslie was one of them, one of the few people. Pastor Needham, there was a few people that came and said, no, I want to touch you and I want to side with you. I, I guess that the warning is when there's confusion in the Bible, it says God is not a God of confusion. When there's confusion of who is telling the truth, there's probably abuse involved. And the yeah. abuser is trying to bring the confusion. So you kind of uh, don't take sides. From what I have observed and certain things I've read, a red flag for me is when I hear somebody paint one of the parties as crazy. That's the number one accusation. And most abused women or people actually believe that. They're like, maybe I am because I overreacted. And so the person, and that's what I was told. I was actually almost forced. And when Saeed came out out of prison, he actually told the courts, like, she's crazy. She's got schizophrenia. How can she be fighting to get me out and all of a sudden say I'm abusive? And that's what I was actually told by many people. Like, you got mental illness. You need, are you on medication? And I wasn't. And the accusation of being crazy or mentally ill is huge. It happens almost every single time where the abuser uh, tries to discredit when they when they call you uh, crazy or mentally ill they're doing two things one they're discrediting you to the pastor or whoever wants to help you oh she's crazy she's you know two they're trying to have you discredit yourself so Mm -hmm. you're no longer relying on your own mental and emotional uh, warnings and you're saying maybe I am not well maybe I shouldn't rely on my own thinking or in my own emotions which god has given us and so they're doing that they're trying to discredit you to yourself and to whoever might try to help you and that's that's a huge warning sign and it happens almost every time yeah we'll be right back after a quick break i wanted to take a minute to tell you about the untangled faith podcast patreon community This Patreon community is the primary way this podcast is funded. As a thank you for their support, my patrons receive access to bonus audio that doesn't get shared with the public. And the bonus audio that I've shared over the past year is also all there. In June, while I was taking some time off, I recorded some short episodes just for my patrons. I talked about why it's hard to see the truth, safe listeners, and lazy geniusing the season of your faith. 
You can access all of this by going to patreon.com slash untangledfaith. That's patreon.com slash untangledfaith. From your experience and from your conversations with people, is it common for an abusive person to try to do something preemptively to discredit the victim where, you know, just in case somebody, just in case they might speak out at some point, they've already sort of planted some seeds that would make people not want to believe the person that had been hurt. Did that happen in your case at all? Oh, it happened all the time. It happened in my case in a very strange way. When uh, in November of 2015, when I told, that was my first boundary, I told Saeed, you cannot call me anymore. If you can't be nice to me, you can't call me anymore. And he actually never did. He actually came when he was released from prison. He called everyone but me. He called Franklin Graham, Greg Glory. He called all these Jay Sekulow. What happened though, when he stopped talking to me actually from prison, I later I learned he had started calling so many people, including my own pastor who said, oh, wow. so just told me from prison. So he from Iranian prison, he started calling people and saying all sorts of things that later I learned that he had said that I was working with the Iranian government. Um, and some people believed it. There was a lot of political figures that took their hands off of this stuff, thinking is not me working with the Iranian government. Uh, he told people that I was mentally ill. He told ACLJ and Franklin Grant, a lot of people, he was like, she's mentally ill. So even, I didn't even know at that time when I had stopped communicating with him that he would actually pick up the phone from prison and start calling people himself Mm. and was already discrediting me. So yes, I think when the abusers um, feel that the person they're abusing might try to get help, they will start without you even knowing, uh, contacting people. I hear that all the time family members, friends, even old friends, church members, pastors, anyone, they start playing the victim and then they start planting seeds that, you know, what does the enemy do? They take half truth. So they, they, they don't say an outlie like outright lie. They'll take something that your friends and family know about you. Maybe you overreact to something or you're too sensitive and then they'll mix it in with lies where they can actually be like, Oh yeah, I have seen her do that oh yeah, maybe you're right. Like she is kind of crazy and she is kind of off and she's kind of maybe taking things too seriously and you didn't mean to do that. And so they'll, you know, um, like Satan did, he took God's word and mixed it up with some lies. And so that's what they do. They take a little bit of what people have already seen in your own personal life and they'll mix in some lies and make them believe that you are not to be trusted and, oh, she's ill and I'm such a good husband taking care of her and you know, she, you know, all of this. So they, they do that with behind your back. And they, Saeed actually did that behind my back while he was still in prison. Well, domestic violence is very common. Um, your experience with being so high profile and having had some advocates that are really well known in the Christian world working to help free Saeed and give uh, publicity and help, help get the word out. In the end, ended up complicating uh, some ways for your own healing and safety. Uh, I would love to hear you explain sort of how that happened. Um, You mentioned Franklin Graham's name, Jay Sekulow. These are people that were very much on the front lines with their own names, uh, advocating for Saeed to be released. And when you told them that he was an abuser, what happened? 
Yeah, I think my worst nightmare is the people that I had gathered to advocate for his prison release, a lot of big names, Franklin Graham and Jay Sekulow and Greg Laurie and, uh, and all of these names, they actually turned on me. And so uh, I was, you know, they, they were wanting to save the marriage or keep the image. And I think, I think um, for example, with some of the names such as Franklin, there was so much invested in the story that uh, a story of, of abuse did not help their cause of, you know, somehow using this story, but it actually uh, backfired on me because people that had gather around me, the Christian community, the millions. Now Said was a martyr, a hero. Now they turned on me. Mm-hmm. And so that honestly was a surprise. Now I think about how naive I was yeah. because I thought we're friends. Like, um, let's say one of my best friends is Miriam Ibrahim. I prayed for her. I advocated for, I was one of the people that signed petitions to get her out of Sudan when she was on death row. When she said she's in domestic abuse, my my love for her did not change. Of course, the same way I wanted to see her out of the Sudanese prison, I wanted to see her freed from an abusive. So when you yes. love someone, it doesn't change based on the, whatever circumstance, whether it's a car accident or lo- whatever it is, you want to jump in and be like, how can I help you? And so when the people that I felt loved me and supported me and all of a sudden turned on me when I was crying to them about the abuse I had endured. And I did, it wasn't just my word. I had Saeed's, um, the head of Saeed's denomination, Assemblies of God, Dr. George Wood called Franklin Graham, talked to Jay Sekulow. He wrote letters saying, yes, we know Saeed was abusive. He destroyed property. He beat up Nagme's dad. He beat up Nagme. Like we knew this in our history. That's why we, we were not so vocal about advocating for Saeed when he was in prison. My own pastor talked to Franklin. So it wasn't just me saying this is how bad it was. It was others saying, yes, it was bad pastors, leaders. And they were saying, we hoped Saeed was going to change in prison. That's why we didn't bring out the dirty laundry early on. These people that had become my friends, the the lawyers at ACLJ, it wasn't just Jay Secular. I was friends with some of these lawyers. They traveled with me. To, with Franklin, who had become like a father figure to me, my kids, I had told them, like, you can trust Franklin. He was so close to our family. For them to turn on me was so traumatic because mm-hmm. I really thought they were my friends. And the Christian community, the ones that were like, Nogme, you're a hero, blah, they turned on me. You, you are, you did it for fame. You did it for money. You're a liar. You're just like all sorts of things were thrown at me. But for me to have been treated a certain way when I advocated for the persecuted church for sight, and then people that I thought were close to me to turn on me was shocking. But now <clears throat> maybe it was because I was so naive, but, but it was sad because those were the same people I had brought in yeah. myself. <laughs> and so they became my, my attackers. And so it really goes back to, are you, I think God um, tests our loyalty uh, and it's, it's, are you, it's like, and and you're and your husband and others who stood up and lost their job. And it might not be like the persecuted church, but in a way it is when we follow Christ and we stand on his values and what's right, we will suffer. That's what my counselor told me. He said, also, he said, Nogme, it's, when we read Matthew 15, uh, 5, where it says, you know, blessed are you when people, you know, uh, revile against you because of Jesus. Like he said, it's not just for the persecuted church. 
it's for people standing up for righteousness. Yeah. And so uh, it's it's costly to do that. And it would have been costly for Dave Ramsey to have been like, yeah. yep, this is going to cost me millions, but I need to be loyal to God and his word over money. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's dangerous. I don't know what they're going to say to Christ, but to choose money over doing the right thing and losing a lot, losing yeah. a lot. And so it comes between, unfortunately, money and but the same thing, like you said, as deja vu, the same thing happened to me. I was told you could, you and Saeed both could have an amazing ministry, have millions. And I was thinking, I just want to live a simple Christian life. I don't want to be caught up. I could have stayed married to Saeed. We would have had, right now I'm a single mom struggling, but I could have had millions of dollars, all of this ministry, um, been praised as a hero Christian woman instead of like bad woman who came out about abuse. But that's not that for me, that's not Christianity. At this point in Nagme's account, my jaw dropped. The similarities between what Nagme was saying and what I had heard about how my friend Melissa explained her interaction with Ramsey Solutions when she went to them with the truth about her marriage. It was so very similar. In fact, I talk about some of these similarities in my bonus conversation with Nagme in the Patreon community. When, once I saw the truth, I couldn't hide it and profit off of a martyr yeah. uh, being in prison and benefiting as a family. And so uh, I think at some point, God uh, sanctifies all of us in different ways. But at some point, we have to choose, am I going to choose the world and money over Christ? And for you guys, you guys paid a price. You could have continued. It was not your story. You didn't have to care about Melissa's uh, thing. Or am I going to have to lose a job because I want to stand up for what's right, you know? And so yeah. unfortunately, money and um, benefit is what affects a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, and in the end, we were accused of not being loyal. Oh, yeah. But you were loyal. You were loyal to God over yeah. people. But you're, you, it's, it's interesting. A lot of abusive systems and people uh, demand loyalty to them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. my pastor did the same thing. And I had to say, you know what? My loyal, my pastor, unfortunately, when my stuff came out, my pastor had defended me. But a year later, it came out that he would, had been in an adulterous relationship for a long time. He wanted my loyalty because he had stood up for me. And mm-hmm. I had to say, I can't be loyal to you. It was really hard for me, but I had to, I had to choose loyalty to God. I didn't see repentance. He was justifying a lot of it and he stepped down, but he was forced to step down, but, um, but it's, I think God ultimately judges our, is, 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 is helping purifying us where we're loyal to him. And it was really hard for me not to be loyal to my pastor, but I had to choose loyalty over God over to, over my pastor who had defended me. Uh, if, if people hear some of my interview, like when I had that meeting with Franklin, my pastor stood up for me. He basically told Franklin Glam, like Graham, like back down, sit down, like, you don't know, you know, he really defended me, but I couldn't be loyal back to him because yeah. um, there was no repentance over his own personal sin and adultery. And so, yeah, I think uh, we're called disloyal, but my pastor did call me that. But yeah, I was not loyal to him. I had to be ultimately loyal to God. Yeah. Wade Mullen said something similar, like when there's this call for loyalty, like what do they what do they mean by loyalty? Loyal to whom and to what? Yes. And we should not be, you know, our highest call isn't to be loyal to a person or an no. institution. 
um, that will get us in all kinds of trouble when we're trying to protect that at all costs. It will so make us loyal point. to Christ. I think when we try to stay loyal to a person or institution at some point, we will have to, in order to keep being loyal to that, we will have to um, step back from loyalty to Christ as, as you know, in, in terms of him being our number one, number one loyalty. Yeah. yeah. And when usually users demand that, usually when they, when someone demands loyalty or submission, there's something wrong. Yeah, that's a red flag. <laughs> run, run. So I saw that you are stepping into some new exciting things and doing more speaking. Want to tell us about what what ministries are opening up to you right now? Um, I, it's so weird because I have PTSD with the word ministry. <laughs> <It doesn't. laughs> I um, bet, I bet you do. I don't want ministry. I wanna, I wanna be loyal to what God has called me to do. Uh, I work with the underground church. I was just talking to my pastor before this interview, saying it's not fun. They're suffering, and I am constantly dealing with a lot of suffering. And then when they get arrested, I just was. It took three years of getting this family out, uh, and now they're finally going to Canada. But it's it's a messy. So for me, um, I am writing a book. Um, but the exciting part of that is that the, uh, a lot of the proceeds will go to help abused women. My hope and passion is that, uh, areas that a lot of, um, there's obstacles and women escaping, especially women escaping abuse is legal cost. And mm. it's also, um, being able to financially become, uh, independent. So mm. my hope is that the proceeds from this book will help to do that. And also, yeah, so I don't necessarily have a ministry of step. I had started an organization called TAF, Tahrir Al-Nisa Foundation with my best friend, Miriam, to help women, but I've kind of uh, taken a break from that. But yeah, my next journey is I will speak where he wants me to speak. And um, I, my hope is that to see more women being rescued and um, find freedom in Christ. Well, I'm so thankful for your time. And I know God is already using your willingness to speak. I had heard you say, and maybe it was on your interview with Julie Royce, that you felt like you're in a, posi a position now where you had enough distance, where you felt healed enough that you could speak, where, yes. you know, where other people aren't, are just too close. They can't right now. So you felt like, this is something that you can do right now because it doesn't cost you. It's not as, it's not as traumatic for you to speak up. No. And I, and so many women tell me you're speaking for me when, when I talk about the way I was treated, when I talk about how the church mishandles it, it's really being a voice for them. I was a voice. I was considered a voice for the persecuted church yeah. and God gave me a megaphone for that. And I hope that I can be a voice for abused women who, because of legal issues and other issues, they can't speak or because they haven't, they're still, it's very close to their journey. Mine has been seven years yeah. uh, where I've, I'm at a place where I feel like cautiously I can speak. I don't, you know, speak and um, not, I don't feel like the wound is being opened up back up again. It's, it's, it's a place yeah. where the wound has healed enough, but yeah, I hope I'm speaking for these women and I can be a voice for them. It really needs collective voice. Uh, yeah. We want to, we want to put someone, and this is where I don't want to be. We want to put someone as a hero, like Nakme Abedini, voice for the persecuted church. But really what brought Saeed out of prison 
was a lot of stay-at-home moms who wrote to their congressmen, to their senators, to picked up the phone, did stuff, did prayer vigils, and a lot of them were actually women. Yeah. Um, and so this one, there's no hero in trying to help the abused. It needs to be all of us. Yes, and, I love that. I don't want to be like, she's the face to helping abuse. It's not me. There's Leslie Vernix. There's not, there's names that are not known. There's voices that don't have a name that are, are, are collectively, we need to do that. There's no hero. This is the thing. Yeah, we, we already love. have a hero, right? His name is Jesus. Yes. His name is Jesus. He's the hero. We don't need followers. We don't need, like, I don't care for a platform for, we have a hero. His name is Jesus. So let's stop making heroes and, and let's work together as a body. As a body is we're all level, we're at the same place. Yes. So I don't want to be the face of help, you know, helping abused women. I want to be a voice, but other voices matter. Your voice in people you reach it matters, Amy, so much uh, to what you're doing matters so much. So yeah, don't make a hero out of anyone, including right. me. And we have a hero. His name is yeah. Jesus. And let, I think each of our voices will matter. So if someone's hearing this, you can make a difference. Actually, we need changes in our government in terms of taking abuse seriously and um, addressing even emotional abuse. A lot of women are suffering in courts and with custody stuff. And so we, as we speak up, things need to change both in our churches and also, you know, in, in a way the women are, a lot of abused women are not, uh, they go through it more and more trauma as they go through the courts or through their church. So as each of us speak, hopefully the culture will change starting with the body of Christ, starting with our churches of how yeah. we handle, uh, how, uh, someone recently, I have to finish with this. Someone recently said, it's interesting. Franklin Graham's organization is called Samaritan's purse. Yet the good Samaritan touched the untouchable, the one bleeding by the side of the road. Yet the way Franklin has dealt with abuse, my case and others, it has been so far from the heart of the good Samaritan. Uh, you know, anyways, I think our collective voices is what's going to make the difference. The same way our collective voices made a very abusive, bully government of Iran release the American uh, hostages. Yeah. Our collective voices can make the unrighteous judge do the right thing. Whether yes. it's in a church, whether wherever it is, it's our constant, our, our collective constant voices that can make a change. And it's not one person that's going to be able to do that. It's not going to be me or Leslie or any any of these big names. It's really going to, or Julie Royce or whoever. It's, it, those are one, we are all one voice. Anyway. I love that. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this conversation with Nagme. We keep talking in some bonus audio I shared with my membership community. You can join in by going to patreon.com slash untangledfaith. That's patreon.com slash untangledfaith. I want to give a special shout out today to Tosca, Nate, Laura, Jim, Diane, and Melody for making my week by sharing on Twitter the things that you were loving about the podcast. I would love to keep the conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook and Faith Untangled on Twitter. You can always find show notes at untangledfaithpodcast.com. The Untangled Faith Podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. Special thanks to producer Michelle Pianic. Hey, I have a great idea. How about we meet back here next week?